Greetings, dear listeners. A little bit of housekeeping we didn't get to this week. Our guest was our friend Sam Goldman, and the conversation was so much fun that two things happened. One, we decided to keep the conversation whole and won't be putting the second, more raucous part behind a paywall. And two, we didn't get to remind you to subscribe to receive paywalled content in case you don't do so already. Apart from bonus episodes of the podcast, Shadi and I take turns writing essays every Friday that are for paying members only. We'd encourage you to have a look at what we've already published and consider supporting our work. Go to wisdomofcrowds.live slash subscribe and check it out. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this week's episode. We love your book, Sam. Thank you, Shadi. We should just stop the conversation here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we love it very much because we're both at the acknowledgments, so that that helps, I think, right? Oh, I'm in there. You are. You didn't even check. That's the first thing I checked. Well, no, because I, I read I read like the previous version. I haven't read like the special actual book version. Yeah. Well, you're you're acknowledged for your efforts in reading the previous version. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, Sam here is 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 Sam Goldman. Uh, the Associate Professor of Political Science and the Executive Director of the John L. Loeb Jr. Institute for Religious Freedom and the Director uh, of the Politics and Values Program at George Washington University. Is that right, Sam? That's everything? That's everything. Uh, you might Give add us more. That, <laughs> that I am I am a national correspondent uh, for the week. Oh, that's correct. That's correct. Are you also still working with Modern Age? Uh, sadly, sadly not. Uh-huh. Um, I I was offered the position with uh, the week, um, and something something had to go. Uh, but I, I'm quite mercenary, and as I told uh, ISI and, and Modern Age, um, I admire what they're doing and was proud to be a part of it. But I, I really need money for diapers. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Not so, my so, diapers. So, so what? <laughs> I should I should I should clarify. <laughs> so yeah, I Sam's mean, not an old person, so we just because they can't, they won't be able to see you. Um, oh, so if they Google we him, should, they could see. Yeah, but we sh- yeah we should note that no one has to get worried. Sam is of a reasonable age. I think he's in his uh, early forties. Uh, forty one as of May. Oh, very, <laughs> okay, very early forties. Um, and the book we're talking about is uh, your new book called After Nationalism, which, um, again, I, I think uh, offers us uh, a wealth of things to talk about uh, in this current moment. Um, I, so, I, Sam, like, how, how's, uh, how's the reception been of it uh, so far? I mean, given that, that you know, I, like I, I also had to, uh, you know, read, a, read an earlier version of this to end up in the, uh, in the acknowledgments. Uh, but I, I, I spent some time uh, last night and this morning um, looking at the at the at the final copy, um, and I hope I, it's better now than it was before. I, it, you know, honestly, it's uh, you're a great writer, so it's it's great fun to read. And honestly, that I, it feels like it 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 did go through through you know a, a pretty decent revision from uh, from when I saw it. Um, I, but more, even more, sort of, um, I think. Importantly, uh, notably for me is is again how how incredibly resonant it is. I mean, when were we doing the, the revisions on this? Was it earlier this year? Or was it late last year? I forget now. I think it must have been late last year. And and if anything, it's it's an even more I think uh, uh, relevant today, given the last uh, you know, given the the first term of Biden and the way sort of our domestic politics have been going, our, our debates about 
about national meaning and, and identity and the rest of it. I, how, how's the, how's the reception been so far? Um, I've been really uh, pleased uh, that people seem to have found the book interesting and useful. Of course, um, not everyone agrees with me about everything. Um, we'll get to that. Is, is too, which is, which is too bad, but uh, to be expected. Um, but as far, as far as I know, um, no one has sort of denounced the book as a work of pernicious ignorance. It may be pernicious, um, but not, I think, for reasons of, of ignorance. And even people who have disagreed pretty significantly with some of my conclusions um, have found the historical and conceptual distinctions helpful. And that's really all that one can hope for with a book like this. I, I mean, maybe, you know, to just kick us off here before, um, I don't know, I'm not sure actually Shadi has much to disagree with you on this book. I, I, I might have more, but 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 it, it's Demir's trying to silence me. He's basically Shadi will have nothing to say in this episode. <laughs> oh no, that that's that's impossible. That that never happens. But uh but Sam, I don't know, maybe maybe you could give us just or give our, our dear listeners a quick outline of um you know, I uh, I think the, the the top line argument of the book, or at least the top line exposition of the theory of American identity uh, that that is contained in the book, just so we have sort of a basis for something to work off of. Yeah. So the argument of the book is that there is no unitary, stable conception of American national identity that can be traced back to 1787 or 1776 or 1620 or 1619, uh, if you prefer that date. And that rather um, than being a story of cohesion followed by disintegration over the last few years or, or the last few decades, um, American national identity has always been significantly contested, um, and those debates have never really gone away. Um, and also, um, the answers to these questions that have dominated um, at particular times and in particular settings have also, have also changed. A lot. Um, so the book is sort of my intervention in the great debate about nationalism provoked by Brexit and the election um, of of Donald Trump uh, that tries to make some of these generalities uh, about the nation or cohesion or the common good or solidarity more specific. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess you know the the the. I remember even talking to you. I feel like you were there at the. You were. You were. You were there at the the uh, the inception of the of the podcast on the infamous trip to uh, to Israel. And I, 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 if I'm not mistaken, you were already. We were talking about the the um, uh, the sort of three conceptions, the three previous and and in many ways overlapping national conceptions of you know American identity. Uh, I don't know, maybe you can outline those a little bit for us, because I, I think that's also super helpful to, you know, as we sort of talk about what's going on today. Yeah, so I, I describe three enduring metaphors or motifs for American national identity. And I'm not saying that these are the only ones that have ever existed, um, but these are the three that seem to be most powerful and to remain with us today. 
Um, the first is the covenant, which is a religiously inflected understanding of the American people as somehow parallel to the biblical people of Israel. Um, and that's heavily influenced by the pilgrim and Puritan experience in New England. The second is the crucible or melting pot. Uh, which is the idea that Americans may have various backgrounds, ethnic, cultural, religious, and so on, but the, over a process of common experience and shared struggle will be forged into uh, an alloy or, or synthesis. Um, and then finally, the creed, uh, which is the idea that Americans are defined by attachment to particular political principles and the instantiation of those principles in American institutions. Um, and although there are points of contact or overlap uh, among those conceptions, um, they're not the same. And in certain ways, they're intention as well as overlapping. Mm. And I, Shadi, did you want to say something? I don't want to silence you. As you said, I was trying to, I didn't want to dominate. It's too late, Demir. <laughs> too late. No, okay. One thing, uh, maybe I'll just jump in here. Can you can you tell us a little bit about obviously without giving away the whole game because we want people to buy your book so you have to be careful about I mean the ending you the can't say line. too much about how it ends <laughs> <laughs> but I I think that from what I can tell some of your critics and I'm not one of them because I think your book's amazing but um, for the sake of argument, I, some of your critics, including in the Law and Liberty Symposium, which was really cool because they did a whole symposium around your book. So that was good. Um, but one thing that comes up there is what, I, what I've called for other books, um, the problem of the last third, that um, you have to end a book and you spend like the last third or quarter trying to kind of bring it all together and offer up a conclusion whether that's a stirring call to arms or some kind of bold, conclusive argument. And I think that one one criticism is that you hold back a little bit, that you don't actually give us that. And I think you would probably say that you can't you can't give us that because there isn't a conclusion. And there's a sort of ambivalence, I think, in aspects of your argument that there is no way to solve our problem that it will remain unresolved because that's how we've always been. We've been unresolved. And to think that there is some answer to a question, to this question, is part of the problem because we're a diverse country, we're a pluralistic country, and we're not going to find a way to agree. And if I could just quote you, um, well, I mean, basically what you do is that you say that unity is not possible, something which I've often said on this podcast. Um, and I think what you propose is um, to have, quote unquote, structures and organizations that express and embody disagreement. So we have to basically come to terms with disagreement and find ways to channel it more effectively. But is that enough? Right. Uh, I, and I should say that I, I really like um, your your description of the problem of the final third, which is not just a problem for my book, but I think a problem for almost all of these books, because having an understanding or an idea about how to understand a problem doesn't mean that you have the 
solution. Um, and I, I, I'm told um, this remark, I think, is attributed to Mark Lilla, um, although I don't know where it came from, that, that that's actually a very American phenomenon, that in Europe, um, if you write a book that diagnoses some problem, that's enough. That's that's all that you have to do. You're not expected to provide the brilliant solution. But in America, every agent, every every editor uh, will have exactly the same question. Okay, you've you've laid out this problem. Uh, what's what's the answer? And something I do wish that I had done a little bit better in the book um, was to make it clear, uh, as as you've described, that my answer is that there can't really be an answer um, and that the yearning for a high degree of cohesion and solidarity and sort of cultural consensus um, is probably not going to be satisfied, you know, however convincing um, a final chapter I or um, or anyone else uh, writes. Um, so I do understand uh, why some readers got to the end um, and felt that the that it sort of had a deflating uh, implication because it is it is somewhat deflating. That that said, I really do think um, that we have resources legally and institutionally to do a better job grappling with these problems than we are now. And it's not any brilliant original insight of, of mine, um, but federalism and local government, freedom of association, these are all practices that allow people who agree on some things to live in ways that reflect those shared beliefs and that are different from the way other fellow citizens in other places might want to live. And the more we search for as we like to say uh, now, you know, comprehensive solutions, an answer that's good for everyone everywhere, I think the more we're going to find that the, the unity we, we want slips through our grasp. You know, I'll just say there, just in, contra, in contradistinction to, to Shadi, I, I prefer my books that have no answers. Maybe this is my European background, but, but I, I actually quite my my the the thing I liked most about it is it was that ambiguity at the end. I think that's one of the 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 strengths of the book from 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 Demir. From my you, you may recall though I said this wasn't a criticism of mine. Yeah, it yeah, was yeah. other people's criticism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> but you're always obsessing about the last third. I mean, I, I love it when it's you know sets up a problem. I remember actually talking to Mark Lilla. I think you were there, Shadi. We talked to him, and he was actually frustrated that that little booklet he published right after Trump was elected, uh, the publisher demanded and 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 therefore. And uh, he didn't want to really provide one. It's just like, well, here it is. Here's a framework how to think about this. Now, you know, go work it out. I don't care. Um, and and uh, I, I, for me, I think that's you know, uh, one of one of to be able to pull that off is 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 uh, is great. But Sam, I, I feel like you know, on the one hand, you do say we have the institutional capacities to do this. But what struck me towards the end, and I, I didn't notice this in the in the manuscript. Maybe it wasn't there initially. Um, you do rely a little bit on this concept of constitutional patriotism, um, or at least you gesture towards it as a as a potential way out. I was a little surprised by that because um, it's it's slightly different from 
federalism and this idea of of you know living apart and being able to sort of tolerate each other given uh by you know at least keeping keeping the these communities from actually taking everything into zero sum i did well, i misread I, that i mean no i i mean i i guess i don't see the the contradiction um and of course like a lot of these debates it it can easily degenerate into a question of of definition you know what does constitutional patriotism mean versus civic nationalism versus constitutional consensus which is a term john rawls uses that that i i borrow um what i'm really talking about um is a a recognition of the legitimacy and value of a particular set of institutions um that are useful partly because they give us space to live to a to some degree uh in our own way uh with others who share our our predilections um and at least in the american tradition those things are not supposed to be uh, are not supposed to be opposed so one of the famous arguments in the federalist in support of what was then the proposed constitution is that it's partly national and partly federal um and what i'm suggesting is not that we need to reject the national element entirely but rather to revive the federal and pluralistic element um and restrict our national debates to what i see as as truly and unavoidably national issues um and let people settle by voting with their feet or private association um those disputes that don't have that character so sam one thing i want to push you on is i mean you're certainly right to say that we we tend to overestimate the degree of unity we've had in past eras of our country. And, and part of that is there's a kind of presentist bias. We always think that what we're experiencing in the present moment is worse because we feel it more powerfully because we're living through it. And we, you know, at least I can't remember because I wasn't alive, like what previous eras of dysfunction and divide felt like the sixties, for example, where there was an uptick in political violence and, you know, people, but even people who were alive in that period won't be able to do a fair comparison because obviously that era has become blurry to them. So that can they really remember exactly what they felt in that particular moment? But I mean, I, I think it is, I think one could argue and, and many have that, yes, if we compare today to um, the late 1700s when Adams and Adams and Jefferson were were fighting and even like threatening each other and um, and John Adams would say things that were quite anti-democratic and he didn't really believe in democracy John Adams that so there, the quote that I think that I cited in my um, recent Friday essay it was something like um, there has not been a democracy yet that has not committed suicide or something along those lines in any case so the point here, though, is that it depends what eras we're comparing. If we're comparing, on the other hand, if we're comparing t this era to, say, the 70s or 80s or 90s, then it is a lot. It, it is actually a lot worse now, um, or at least is somewhat worse. And there's also another part of it, I think, where even if things were were as bad before, 
if you feel them to be worse, then that actually matters. That's part of your reality. And we have social media to basically accentuate and amplify those feelings of dread. So maybe people were feeling that sense of dread 30 or 40 years ago, but we had no way to know what they were feeling because they they didn't really have access to national media, to social media. So they were just quiet living in their towns and whatever it may be. So, I mean, how would you sort of respond to this that these sentiments are actually worse because they are amplified today in a way that they couldn't have been prior. And then also if we compare, um, and maybe we can get to this, and I don't know if you want to say something, Demir, about the big Bob Kagan essay in the Washington Post, basically warning that the U.S. is on the verge of becoming a one-party state in 2024. We can talk about that too, that we have one party now, which doesn't seem to believe in small d democracy and actually seems very willing to overturn elections if those elections don't go its way. That wasn't really something you had in the, even in the 1960s. Well, it wasn't something that you had in the 1960s, um, but even these more extreme risks are not unprecedented. Um, and if you look back to the later 19th century, uh, the situation actually looks quite familiar in, in the degree um, of cultural pluralism, in the violence of politics, in the subversion of electoral and other political, uh, political processes. Um, we shouldn't have a rosy picture um, of the past. Now, of course, the difference is not just that we, we don't remember that. It's far outside living memory, um, but also that we know how it turned out. And that allows us to construct a sort of teleological narrative where it was always going to turn out okay. Um, it didn't have to be that way. And one of the things that I, I'm trying to do um, in the book is to revive that sense of contingency uh, against an understanding of American history as the inevitable unfolding of principles of liberty and equality beginning in 1776 and continuing to the present. Um, and that story comes in both, roughly speaking, progressive and, and conservative um, conservative flavors. So I think there there is precedent um, for a lot of these problems. The, the bad news is that in the past, Americans have really had to go up to the brink before pulling back. And we may not have done that yet. Uh, so I, I do sometimes fear that things are going to get worse before they get better. Yeah. <clears throat> I So lots to, I think, pull on there. I mean, I do want to bring in that Kagan essay that everyone was talking about last week um, or last weekend. Um, but, but even, you know, to get back to your, your, your point about um, rebalancing, let's say it plays into this, uh, you know, 
you said it's constitutional patriotism is not exactly the answer, but it's basically, or there's no contradiction between having a sense of constitutional patriotism and then rebalancing towards the more local as opposed to the national. So federalizing politics a bit more. You know, I, we just had uh, elections in Germany, um, and I'm always struck by looking at how the Germans sort of approach this is how federalized their system is and how, uh, to a certain extent, I don't know Germany well enough to really judge because they have their own polarization problems and, you know, regional parties and the strongholds for more extreme parties on either side, uh, depending on history. Um, but but it strikes me that 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 a certain level of federalism is has slipped away. I don't know, Sam, if you if you agree to that, you know, I mean, obviously, one can hope we could restore some of this. And, you know, there's a historical precedent for more of it. But, you know, something that's not necessarily explicit in your book is how much there's just been a, a uh, generational, you know, one could even say since World War Two, just a, just a, a rise in that in that, um, of the stakes just being raised on for national politics. Certainly, you know, uh, social media and modern technologies have taken this into the stratosphere that, uh, again, I, you know, there's, there's always been this kind of, um, carnival like element to our, to our democracy and, and colorful characters, you know, uh, uh, capturing voters minds and, you know, uh, but it, it's never been, um, quite as national as it is now. And, politics have, I don't know, at the same time become inherently, national politics have become imbued with a kind of meaning and a kind of sense of uh, identity. I mean, sure, partisanship, but it's 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 more than that. It's a sense of who you are, and it's a fight for the, the soul of the country that's not just incidental. I mean, it seems like we've been building to this for a while, and yeah, social media exacerbates it. And then you see a lot of people writing, well, we got to do X, Y, and Z to social media. Our friend Peter Pomerantsev is like doing a lot of this stuff now about, you know, how do you do tweaks to this and how do you, you know, if they're legislative tweaks or, you know, any kind of, I, I just don't see it personally. It seems to me that that it's, it's both that America has been on this trajectory to imbue meaning at the center uh, for quite a while that has been, you know, hypercharged recently, but you know, it's just a trend that's already existed, um, and 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 like I said, that there's something. Uh, you know, just to go back to the German thing, when I think about it, you know, the Germans have the luxury of not really worrying about the center so much because, quite frankly, their entire politics aren't or aren't aren't um, uh, dependent on on the center in a way. And I mean largely because they live in this weird little bubble that the United States provides them within the European Union. They can they have the luxury of having local democratic politics and uh being less uh flustered or invested perhaps in in the the bigger picture. I don't know, is that is that resonating at all like that that little sketch I've just given you there? Yeah, I think I think that's accurate and I say um in in the book that it's it's a very dangerous thing when people treat ideological or or partisan commitments as their primary source of meaning and and purpose because that means that political disputes are unresolvable um and one of the differences having said a moment ago that there are similarities to the uh late 19th century 
One of the differences is that many of the issues that divided the parties and factions in that earlier period um, were more concrete um, and uh, easily easily divisible, um, so much so that it can be hard for us to understand why the politics of the late 19th century were so heated because they're arguing about things like civil service jobs or the gold standard. Today, one of our problems is that we're not arguing so much about political issues that can be resolved by political means. We are dealing with these these questions of meaning and identity that I think just just can't be solved no matter who is elected or what the majority in Congress decides to do. But then but then if one if part of what you're saying Sam is that we have to pull back from the brink and not stake so much in our politics and live with deep difference and allow for more of that ambiguity how do we persuade people to do that if in fact so much is at stake i mean i think i think it is hard to escape the conclusion that quite a lot is at stake in 2024 if trump runs again and i think what the bob kagan essay which we'll include a link to really emphasizes is that Republicans are preparing the way for for trying to overturn election results that are not to their liking. And they'll have more capacity to do that in 2024 than they did in 2020. And they're basically laying the groundwork for that by passing legislation in red and purple states to basically uh, make it easier to decertify election results. So how do we how do we persuade people to not do that? How do we persuade people to take politics less seriously if politics is getting more serious? Well, I don't think we can persuade people either way um, because I I, just, I don't think these attitudes are the result of reading books or being persuaded or not um, by by arguments. Um, social media, residential polarization, um, educational polarization, those trends are much more powerful because they, they help constitute people's whole experiences of the world, um, which doesn't mean that, that you shouldn't you shouldn't try, uh, but writing articles or publishing books is not going to make the difference one way or the other. Um, again, I, I think um, it's only by going up to the brink that we'll be forced to consider what is really uh, what is really essential and what uh, we are willing to uh, compromise on and what we can't compromise on. And I hope that doesn't happen in 2024 uh, or in the future, but it, it may. And although I don't think I agreed with everything in Kagan's article, I, I do think he, he's right to be worried um, that we are approaching a sort of precipice. You know, the, well, the, so sa- go ahead. Go ahead, Shadi. Well, Sam, I was just going to ask... Um, well, I mean, I, I would like to get into the question, at least in passing, of what you yourself are in terms of your own ideological or political affiliations. 
I think suffice it to say that you you do lean right at least a little bit, um, and and I don't think you kind of I don't think you say otherwise. But as someone who does spend more time with Republicans, with folks on the right side of the political spectrum, I mean, do you buy do you buy the worst case scenario that a majority of Republicans today in our country don't actually believe in democracy? Um, they they and that and that that is that is an odd situation to find ourselves in, which I I don't know the history of the late eighteen hundreds as well, so I don't know to what extent you actually had a critical mass of people who said we will not respect election results and we will try to over overthrow or overturn them, but what why maybe just before we get into whether you well this is part of it do you buy that this is possible that you could have a coup-like situation in 2024 where Republicans disregard the election outcomes in a much more serious way than 2020. And then I guess we should also try to understand what's driving Republicans to think this way. Why don't Republicans, or at least a majority of Republicans, believe in democracy? So to the first point, um, I think a a coup-like situation is unlikely, um, although not impossible. Um, what's, what's clear is that there is a lot of scope for confusion and mischief, um, and that in a situation of confusion and mischief, other bad and unforeseen things can, can happen. Um, I, I'm, I'm, less convinced that there is any there's a risk of a sort of concerted plan that leads from Donald Trump or another Republican candidate um, losing the the election to entering uh, to entering the White House. But as I've been saying, you know, we don't we don't want to we don't want to find out uh, either. As for why this is possible, um, I, I don't think it's exactly true that most Republicans don't believe in democracy. On, on the contrary, um, belief that the election was stolen is, in a sense, a consistent democratic belief. I mean, if, if, you, if you think um, that uh, millions of votes were created or, or stolen um, in an effort to conceal the true outcome, um, you you would be right to be to be very very angry about that <laughs> and that's not that's not a rejection of of democracy um that's more of an an empirical dispute now i should say in case there's any doubt among your listeners um i i do not i do not share that that view um but i don't think that it reflects a rejection of democracy per se what worries me more um, is the attitude among people who have promoted the idea of a stolen election. Not so much those those who believe what they're told, but rather those who have been telling it who don't actually believe that, um, but believe that either it's a useful thing to say um, that will have no serious consequences um, or they think um, that it's true in a sort of 
seriously, but not literally way, uh, but not literally way, you know, Venezuela, Hugo, the ghost of Hugo Chavez didn't concoct hundreds of thousands of votes, but there, there was cheating of, of some kind, or maybe worst of all, um, that we are already in a post-constitutional situation in which the other side doesn't even pretend to obey the law or constitution, so we shouldn't either. Um, and that's, that's more disturbing to me in a, in a way, um, than people who believe incorrectly but genuinely, um, that their side did win. A democratic election, but that that outcome um, has been uh, covered up or or uh, fraudulently rejected. You, you know, the hearing you to talk about this, I mean, I I, I want to constantly go back to this question about. Um, I, I know it's something that that you know, Shadi and I kick this around a lot. Um, I feel like I'm maybe coming to a, a sharper understanding of why I find democratic minimalism not fully satisfying which is you know that that all you need it's it's sort of a, an adjunct to to what i was sort of you know lobbing your way earlier sam about constitutional patriotism about this idea that you know just a, a faith in the in the in the in the process is enough to sort of glue it all together um let me just sort of throw some things at you two uh in what you're 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 sort of talking about Sam, I, I share the concern about the brink, basically, and even this idea. I think you put that really well. That maybe we're already there in so many ways that that this this uh, belief in in the fair play has already gone so far, and like all bets are off. Um, but I, I guess the the part that bugs me about the means of thinking about everything in terms of democracy and process is that. How do I put it? Um, at the brink, if we're finding ourselves at the brink, I think that the most interesting part of Kagan's essay comes pretty early when he talks about the possibility of mischief and riots and things. And then you you find, um, uh, you know, uh, basically uh, Biden with finding himself in the position of either Abraham Lincoln or what did you say? Andrew Jackson at the time, like basically existing in a post-constitutional order, not sure whether, you know, any action he takes at that point, you know, is justified or not having to decide whether to reimpose order. And then, you know, what comes of that after that is, uh, uh, you know, something else. I mean, certainly after the civil war, when Lincoln, uh, basically acted and, and crushed the South, we had, basically a different kind of order, like the country was somewhat refounded. If we're getting to that point, I, I feel like all these questions about democracy are kind of, I don't know, secondary faith questions about, again, sort of who we are and how we talk about ourselves. But what we're really talking about is is the coming to a head of a certain kind of power struggle between factions, right? And And what we're talking about is not whether there's a commitment to democracy or a belief in the goodness of of the process but if we're getting to a point where the previous sort of i don't know fiction of cohabitation breaks down and needs to get resolved one way or the other by basically a reimposition of a new kind of order or i mean it'll be certainly justified as a reimposition uh, of the old order or a restoration of things as they were before 
Is that making sense? Basically, I mean, I, I'm, I, I guess I have been reading far too much Carl Schmidt recently, and I, I, I'm constantly struck by when people talk about democracy and liberal democracy and the process as an almost, you know, stabilizing ipso facto thing that we need to cling to, and that's the thing that holds us together. It seems to get it backwards somehow. It like I, I look at the situation right now, and I, you know, reading Kagan's essay, and it seems to me more like we've just had an order that's breaking down, and we just might be careening to a point where it just needs to get reimposed one way or another. Is that is that sound right to you? I mean, this is at the core of why I'm uncomfortable with. This this invocation of constitutional patriotism or minimal democracy as being enough to do this. Sometimes you just have to sort of create something and then see where it sort of runs from this. And I feel like we're getting to that brink, you know, that that po- post constitutional moment. I don't know. Is that- Demir, point of point of order. What wh- what do you mean reimposed? Well, I mean, Kagan has a, that passage where he says basically, you know, uh, send in troops to southern cities where riots are happening, and uh, you know, basically. Uh, marauding, unhappy uh, citizens feeling like the election was stolen. Uh, he wasn't after- advocating that. No, he was, he was I saying think he it was could raising- happen. He was saying it could yeah, happen. Yeah, it could happen for sure. It doesn't mean he, he no, no, thinks no, no, it I'm should saying, happen. I'm not saying- No, no, no. I, I'm, I'm giving Kagan this full due. I'm not saying it should happen, but it may have to happen is what I'm saying. That's the, the scary part of what he's saying is that, that you know, there is no- uh, again, sort of like coming back to something, some kind of faith in in common this, that, or the other, it's basically we might be coming to a point where, again, analogous to, to the point before the Civil War, uh, where where these things just come to the point where there's a rupture, and that rupture is not resolved by democracy, by appeals to democracy. It's resolved by actually crushing a rebellion, basically. Yeah, is what sure, it comes what does to. it mean for something to have to happen? Because this i mean it's we're we're using the passive voice here it's it's individuals and organizations and institutions that will decide whether or not to individuals will order. decide in fact i and, mean that's that's the point and, and they I should think, but i mean well, we very, should oppose he, that no 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 not we he's very careful about that he says <laughs> biden will have the choice of whether to send in troops yes, to crush a and rebellion we should choose, and not we, we should choose no 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 not, not we <laughs> biden i mean that's the point that's exactly the point i'm trying to make here doesn't matter us not we the people we're not deciding shit on this Okay, but Biden sh- should choose wisely if that is I the mean, choice. And- ideally, right? Sam, do you know what I'm getting right, at here? Basically, about about y- you know. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I don't think that I disagree in the way you draw the scenario. I don't think that's a problem with minimal democracy or constitutional patriotism or or civic nationalism or whatever other. Cons, you know, conceptual description you use. Um, the problem is that if if people are not willing to live together under the same institutions, they're not willing to do it. Yeah, and no, and sometimes no argument is sufficient to convince them. Now, to the extent that one can make an argument, and this is the argument I, I make in the book and have gestured toward in our conversation, um, it's that we don't want to find out the hard way yeah. why these institutions are important. Yeah. But I, I but I, I don't I don't know and I don't expect that people will be convinced by that. Um, and I would just one thing where one place where I would be cautious um, is it's really easy for intellectuals who have been reading Schmidt or whatever else to talk about <laughs> the, the state of the exception and reimposing order. Um, but 
we're, we're talking about really heavy duty stuff here. Yeah. Um, and whether it's the, the American Civil War, uh, in which I think scholars now believe something like three quarters of a million people were killed in battle uh, alone out of a population of, of 30 million. So that's really significant. Or the destruction uh, of Germany in in the nine in the nineteen forties. Um, this 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 isn't the sort of thing that we should play around with. So all all I can really say um, to anyone who's tempted by this sort of rhetoric is: Is it really worth it to you? For sure. And I hope that the answer is no. Um, and. I do worry that as in the period before the Civil War, a certain number of people are sort of LARPing themselves into very deep water. Mm. Uh, let me let me just but if yeah. but if the but if the answer if the answer is is yes, and this is um a a good Schmidian argument, there's nothing you can tell them that's going to convince them otherwise. Let me just, you know, to to clarify, I I, I hope I'm not LARPing myself into anything here because honestly, I, I, I present this as, as someone, again, you know, started sort of joking about the, the, the European background on it. But it's what I really liked about your book. So I think it gives a really good, um, uh, synoptic view of American identity as it's changed, uh, through the centuries. And as someone, as an immigrant here, as someone who grew up here, but, you know, in many ways, it's always sort of, I've still been puzzled by the place. I think it's 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 incredibly clarifying book on that on that count, um, on on the different kinds of ways that that this unity was forged and reforged, um, and uh, basically how it's changed the overlaps, how the narratives have sort of even morphed into each other, borrowed from each other. It's it's very powerful stuff, and as a result, I mean, I think you know how you started this this conversation, saying that there's plenty of reason to be, uh, well, I wouldn't say hopeful but at least one can take some amount of solace to say that that the, these debates have been ongoing and therefore are nothing new even though the circumstances are changing and again we shouldn't be complacent about that um i guess you know the reason why i keep coming back to the constitutional patriotism against that against minimal democracy is because i i'm i'm constantly struck by that that is precisely, as you said, you know, a game intellectuals play with themselves about what, you know, can constitute minimal meaning. The, I think what's powerful about your book is that, you know, the, 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 in many ways, it's, it's also a book about intellectuals, you know, telling stories about America. I think what, what bubbles out from underneath it, though, is, I think, how basically America has bumbled through despite all of this or, or through all of this. <sighs> I, 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 I'm, I'm concerned when, when we fall back on something like that. And I think that, you know, insofar as we're doing more than entertaining ourselves here, having this conversation, we're trying to get at, you know, again, without doing the last third, because I don't think we're capable of it, but really just analyzing the problem. The problem seems to me exactly that is that, you know, uh, maybe America could afford to not care about the center so much before. Even before social media, it, it started to not be able to afford that. Um, again, I, I, I point back to modern Germany right now, which is able to indulge in these kinds of, again, I think liberal democratic fantasies about what makes a society function. This idea that, that one can possibly not care about such things, largely because they don't have to. I, there's something, 
I, I haven't figured it out myself yet, but it seems to me that there's something that that for for important reasons, uh, largely I think having to do with that we are a globe, uh, uh, a striding uh, imperial ambitious power with desires to you know transform the world and things like that. Because we're so ideological on even that level, we can't content ourselves to basically what the Germans have ensconced in the European Union and American protection. That's just not open to us. So, well, what do you what do, what do you think the alternative is? Ah, I mean, I think that's one of the best parts of your of your book is where you say, you know, consider the alternatives and and don't be glib about it. I think that's exactly correct. But I I, I what I why I think it's it's a good time to be talking about your book in the context of Kagan. Is because I think Kagan has provides a, a very alarming uh, scenario, which I, I I think is quite resonant. Not because, uh, as he puts it, you know, uh, this is though he's correct. I think it's it's you know you know on on the one party, but I think you take a step back from Kagan and you see this kind of disintegration happening. Um, and I think your book is actually a good way to to think about what we had before and what we've lost. And I'm unsatisfied by the answer being, uh, you know, what we've had before ultimately is, is this belief in, in, uh, I don't know, uh, discontented living together, uh, through federalism, because I'm not sure federalism works anymore for us. But okay, well, but Demir, uh, I think there, mm. mm. Go on. <laughs> we, either one of you. Yeah. I mean, oh. what, 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 what we had, what we had before, um, is, in many ways, the the lingering result of an unprecedented military mobilization for global ideological conflict yep. um, between 1941 um, through the early 70s and maybe through the late 80s, depending exactly how uh, how you want to count, um, and. It's true that we got lucky about the way that turned out. Um, it's very hard for me to imagine how those conditions could be recreated. Yeah, yeah. Shadi, we're going to... So, gonna... uh, you know, one fundamental difference with Germany is Germany has a parliamentary system, which means that no matter who wins an election, it's still going to be a vaguely similar coalition of parties with maybe some minor... I mean, it's not... We're not talking about fundamentally different outcomes. So, whether the whether uh, Merkel's CDU wins without Merkel, um, or the SPD, the social supposedly socialist party wins, it's not going to change things all that much. These are parties of the center. Sometimes the Greens can try to join a coalition. Um, maybe in the future, the far right party, the AFD, will have more of a chance to join a coalition. Although that's not really possible now because there's still two toxic for the mainstream. But ultimately, the stakes aren't all that high, um, at least not compared to the US. So yeah. people can vote, but it's not the end of the world who wins. Because the two parties that are number one and number two, they can switch places, but they're not they're not extremely different. Do you that's think it, one. Yeah, do you think but it's just parliamentarism I, versus presidential system that's, that's leading to this? It's, that's one. But the other aspect, though, I would say is you know, Germans have something that we don't. They can fall back on a shared sense of history and ethnicity. 
um, that we don't have. We're not an ethnically determined country. We're an ideological country. So, so I think I think that actually gives gives too much too much credit to certain German um, uh, accounts of of German national identity, because of course Germany is is a, is a young country, young, much younger than the United States, um, and was really quite fractious and in certain ways chaotic um, for much of its history. What defines the modern German political system is the physical destruction and unconditional defeat of the Third Reich. So I don't think it's that there's any special quality that comes from shared German ethnicity or or a more um, enclosed linguistic culture than than we have it's a result of a particular historical experience can we say though that germans aren't fighting over an idea that is not the fundamental driving force of german politics but what we're fighting over is the american idea every day that's what americans are fundamentally disagreeing about what it means to be american because it's an idea yeah well i'm i'm I think it's true that those are differences in the way our politics functions right now. I don't think that the reason is that America somehow has this special ideal character and Germany is necessarily constrained by ethnicity or religion um, and, and, and culture. I, it's just striking that you said, you know, I mean, I, I you'd, you'd alluded to it before when you were chiding me for, for being, uh, uh, for LARPing too much into the Civil War. But I mean, it's striking the extent to which, you know, the German project is as much, you know, a, a, a product of utter devastation as, as arguably the Civil War, as the modern America is. And again, I think your book draws the distinction that, that, you know, the, the real, a, a different conception of America also comes out of our experience of World War II and fighting the two world wars and and the mobilization and what that creates for for the sort of creedal approach. Uh, but but it is striking that that you know uh, we we like to talk about you know uh, contiguous American history, but the the real brink for us uh, is is Lincoln and and is the war, and that's that's the 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 extra constitutional um, rupture. That that gives rebirth to America, correct? Yeah, in 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 some ways, I think I I think that's that's right. Um, uh, the Civil War and Lincoln resolve questions that could not have that were not resolved and could not have been resolved under normal constitutional means. Um, but they also opened new questions, which played themselves out um, over the next several decades and, and into the 20th, um, into the 20th century. Um, so even when there is a reimposition of, of order, as, as you've described it, um, that's never permanent either. Um, and it may be that in in Germany, in some at some point in the future, um, the the binding force of the World War II experience will wear off, uh, and who knows what will happen then? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my that's that's ultimately my 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 worry about what's happening here is that that you know we're we're maybe at that kind of point. I don't know. 
Um, well, so Demir, but it, so if you're a LARPer, I think it's worth actually, uh, I don't even know exactly what that stands for. <laughs> Does anyone know actually? Live, what it, live action role player. Yeah. Oh, wow. So, I actually did not know that. Really? Shadi? Come on. This is a no. So, I know, swear. People, no, I'm not. It might be Shadi's younger than us, Sam. That's why he might have missed the whole LARP phenomenon. <laughs> you no, know, so people people who who dress up as as medieval knights or you know Roman Roman legionnaires or something. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes, I've heard about them. So, okay, this gets to something that a previous guest has brought up in his own book, uh, Bruno Machais, who says that a lot of this is dream politic or fantasy politics. And I, I think that when we talk about the prospects of a civil war or some kind of like serious violent conflict in the U.S., what does a war require? It requires soldiers. Color me skeptical that there, there, there is a critical mass of Americans who are actually willing to fight and die for whatever they're fighting and dying for. I just – I have trouble seeing how how – the threat of civil war, and I guess people, <laughs> famous last words, right? I guess people always say this right before a civil war happens. They don't really want to do that. They're not really going to fight. But I think that there is a certain kind of, um, uh, well, first of all, there's a certain level of like luxury in fantasizing about violent conflict that um, in some ways we have a comfort that Europe Europe doesn't because they actually know what it's like to have what two, three, four percent of their population dying in a war rather recently. We don't. And I, I just don't know if I know, I certainly don't know a lot of Americans who I think would be willing to fight not just in a civil war, but any kind of war. Or maybe this is another way of saying that there is one side in the factionalization of American politics that probably, you know, so what, I mean, this is something to be worried about that if there was a civil war, the left side of the spectrum probably wouldn't fight as effectively. I, I, I mean, are I, you disagree? I, no, no, I'll give you, I, I think that's, that's not exactly how it would play out. And I think you're right about first uh, the levels of technology and you know what any of this would look like, but really what we're talking about is again, I think Kagan, it's not the point of his piece. I think the point of his piece sort of gets lost by the end where he's just talking about, I think, relatively ineffective, uh, you know, institutional tweaks that can make to forestall his nightmare scenario. I don't I don't really buy that, you know, uh, uh, abolishing the filibuster will, will really solve this or or, you know, having some sort of bulwark against uh, the kind of, uh, uh, you know, tweaks that are being made to election laws in the states is going to cut it. Um, I, I think basically what it comes down to is you have mass unrest uh, and rioting. And then the question is, you know, uh, Biden calls in the National Guard to quell this, you know, uh, and he, he puts it there at that point. You know, what you're likely to get is just a, a sense of delegitimization of the presidency uh, and a sense that, you know, one side is acting in a tyrannical fashion that gets labeled a tyrant. The question then becomes is, you know, uh, does the military hold together and, you know, is he able to, to quell this? I think so. I think it's a, it's a quick and probably somewhat violent quelling of cities that that happens then. And then you just have, you know, uh, I think a, a, a rump of the population that, that just, I think, probably refuses to participate. Then who knows? I mean, what kind of, what political violence looks like after that? I don't think it's a civil war. I think it's really bad though. Um, potentially, I guess that's the nightmare that, 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 that Kagan left for me. And then again, it gets to that question of, of, 
you know, what is this order look like? I think we'll all tell ourselves and as intellectuals, we're primed to just explain what happened and, and say how it's all part of a, you know, normal process. We'll come up with a way of saying that, you know, the Republic was saved and the rest of this, not sure that it will be. And that's, that's, that's the nightmare scenario for me at that point is like a, a redefinition of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, I tend to agree that the the risk of a civil war as as actually occurred in in the 19th century um is pretty pretty small. I mean, even interstate wars aren't really fought that way um any anymore, but disorder, delegitimization, institutional breakdown, dueling claims of authority that are very difficult to to sort out all of those things uh, seem possible, if, if not, um, if if not imminent. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I mean, you wrote a piece about uh, about um, you know the the commonalities between uh, our current situation in Latin America. How many? That was like last week, I think it was in in your column. Yeah, last uh, week. That's right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, is 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 that again? Maybe even Shadi, you can sort of. Uh, well, I was gushing about the piece on Twitter, and um, I guess we're this will probably end up being part part two of the podcast. Um, you know, as we get into some of these additional issues, I think that first of all, everyone should read um, the Latin America article. <laughs> but basically, same. You didn't say more about it, but what I loved is that it's actually a a rather original argument, insofar as not many people make it, and I certainly haven't heard the comparison being made that often that there is a danger and actually it's a misplaced comparison to always say, why are we not more like, like Europe is when there's no, there's no sort of inherent reason to think that that's where our commonalities would lie. Most obviously we have more in common with our own continent and the continent below us, the Americas. And part of that, which I think is really interesting. Um, and I hadn't, uh, you know, you talk about unrestricted birthright citizenship as being fundamental to the American idea, something which I very much agree with. And I've said in the past that if there's one thing that defines them, that defines America, at least relative to Europe, it's the fact that we have birthright citizenship. And there's not a single European country that has at least unrestricted birthright citizenship. On the other hand, most Latin American countries do have that. Um, and once you start comparing us to Latin America, you see some other commonalities when it comes to crime, when it comes to um, demagoguery of various sorts. Presidential systems certainly say, are yeah, more that. common in Latin America than they are in Europe, so on and so forth. Yeah, I mean, the point the point of the piece, um, and maybe we've been guilty of this in in this discussion so far is that there's a strong tendency, um, especially among intellectuals, to interpret America as kind of a, a deviant Europe, um, or at least as on the same trajectory uh, as European states. But of course, we're we're not in Europe. And if you look in our hemisphere, um, you see some striking similarities, um, not least in the degree of, of pluralism that exists as a fact and that um, 
the various governing institutions are, are supposed to accommodate. So something that uh, I think many Americans don't don't realize um, is that in, in certain respects, uh, Canada is much more um, committed to local and provincial government and various forms of communal self-government um, than than we are. And one of the things I say when people say to me, oh, well, that, you know, that that can't work, that's impossible, is that um, Canada does it pretty well. It's it's not perfect. And it's it's not um, a one to one comparison for the US. But there, there are institutional possibilities here, once we think beyond the familiar set of examples. Um, but there are also there are also dangers. And if you look um, uh, up and down uh, the, the hemisphere, you, you see um, a lot of guns, uh, you see very complicated and tense uh, racial or, or ethnic uh, relations. And you see a lot of religious fervor, uh, at least as compared to Europe. And those are all some of the contributing factors to what feels like the instability of American politics today. And I, and I love the idea in a way, because when people, pe- people often complain that the US or like certain cities or states are are like third world countries or are becoming like third world countries. It's a common trope, especially actually in some ways on both sides of the spectrum. I mean, folks on the right will point to, you know, I don't know, dirt and Im- <laughs> dirtiness and immigration and things like that and say, oh, we're becoming a third world country with these brown people coming in. But then leftists will say, well, we don't have basic health care and we have homeless people on the street and government can't actually seem to address these very um, basic questions around public services. Um, and that makes us look more like a third world country. And maybe that is actually the right way to think about America is that um, to the extent that Latin American countries are kind of like third world countries or at least close to that. Canada is a third world country. Of, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is all I think we're not even supposed to say that the third world We're supposed to say developing country or um, economically disadvantaged nation state, you know, who knows what they're using now. Luckily, this is going to be in part two, so probably for subscribers only, so no one can really get too worked up about it, um, and it can't, like, go viral or whatever. But yeah, I mean, maybe that's the right way to look at our... Hmm. Somebody has has a line, I'm not sure whose it is, um, that the the United States is not really um, a a first world or developed country. It's a very rich developing country. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. You know, and that's... That yeah. sounds sort of paradoxical, but but once you begin to think about it, you, you see it everywhere in, in the phenomena that you're describing, uh, Shadi, um, uh, the, the inequality of wealth, the spotty character of infrastructure and, and public, public services. Um, all of this is sort of consistent with a Western Hemisphere post-colonial country that got extremely rich. Yeah, you know, and yeah. that's what this country is, or that's at least a big part of what this country is. So, what are the implications, though, Sam? Because yes, fine. So, if we think of ourselves more like a third-world country, 
What does that actually mean? And not to put you into the position of trying to come up with a final third on this particular question, but I do wonder where that takes us, if anywhere. Um, well, it probably takes us nowhere, nowhere good. And I think you've, you've tweeted something like um, your optimistic scenario is that the American future is a South American future. You know, I mean, wait, you... oh, I, wait, I said that. <laughs> I think you said that. Cancel shot. Wow, good that Lord. sounds pretty. That sounds pretty good, actually. Like I'm impressed it, that it, it I came up with it that. It was something, something like you know, our, our futures are either the Middle East or South America, and South America is the more the more appealing option. Oh, more wow, democratic, yeah. that sounds brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I'll say though, you know, I mean, I what the, the real virtue of the the of the comparison, Sam, is is you know to to play off of Shadi's implicit sort of you know almost racism there in the in describing <laughs> the the third world countries and the rest of. It. I mean, I I think it, it what your piece brilliantly does it shows up our sort of snobby attitudes towards this, and I think in a very productive way because. You say at the end that, you know, the European nation state model just clearly is not applicable here. And I think that's 160% true. It just doesn't apply. Uh, but, but more importantly, you know, you look at the, the failures of the sort of European Union as a project. You see that, that it's, it's coming apart. And the European Union sort of vision is to rely on this kind of creedal idea that you outline in your book. And it's, it's running aground because, you know, creedalism by itself just doesn't cut it. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's, it's so helpful in, I think, in a very uh, clean and cold way, cutting against our implicit bigotries that, you know, we, we see this first world as having being both economically and politically developed in a, in a certain sort of way. And I think it opens up the imagination to really think about what is it that is unique about the, you know, the new world, call it political experience, and then consider that in a spectrum of, you know, uh, more failed experiments and, and more successful experiments. And, you know, uh, look at that as a cohesive whole rather than, than constantly comparing ourselves to, you know, some kind of, uh, enlightenment project that, that starts on the continent and is, you know, getting full, full, uh, uh, expression here in the United States. I think it's false. And that's really good essay for that. You know, somebody pointed out to me, um, in an email response to that piece that, uh, an, an aspect of um, especially South American society that m most U.S. Americans, as the Germans like to say, U.S. Americaner um, <laughs> or North Americanos, as, as uh, they would say, um, don't know about, is that the the upper classes there really do consider themselves transplanted Europeans, yep. and they have utter cultural contempt for Americans. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> whom 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 they see as absolute new world barbarians. <laughs> That's well, right. you know who and else has utter wrong about mm. that. <laughs> Go well, on, you know who has else has utter contempt for Americans. Americans, exactly. <laughs> the other thing that I would say, though, and I'm just playing. Um, I'm just thinking out loud here, having just been in Italy, third world country. Uh, there were definitely some moments where people made. Um, comments about parts of Italy being like the third world in very specific ways that there are just certain things that you can't do easily in Italy. Um, it's not an efficient country, except when it comes to trains, but you know what they say about the trains running on time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, be careful what you wish for. But, uh, you know, I think that this really does hold for the Mediterranean the and, and Southern European countries 
So I would add to that Greece, uh, Spain, Portugal, I guess maybe Croatia. Good Lord, yes. um, So on and so forth, that these are countries that do have interesting echoes from the Middle East or Middle Eastern style. And I don't mean that pejoratively, because obviously some of it can be quite positive, depending on your perspective. But um, I don't know. I just wonder... Well, I mean, I, I would, I, I think I, I would, I, I agree with you. I would put it in a slightly different way. It's not echoes from the Middle East. It's that the, the Northwestern European style nation state, um, is probably a more limited form. Yes. Uh, than we tend to think because we have this teleological vision um, of, of history that culminates in the establishment of the great nations of Europe. Yeah. No, I think that's and, right. Yeah, that's yeah. fair. Yeah. And, and my point is not that it doesn't, it doesn't work uh, for them. I think it does work reasonably well, but there's a lot of the world and even parts of Europe where that model just doesn't make sense. And one of the things that the Southern European countries that you're describing have in common um, is not their connection to the Middle East, but that they were integral parts of the Roman Empire. Yeah, and well, and and also integral parts of the Islamic Caliphate. And well, Cro- some some this, were uh, some were yes. Yeah, Croatia doesn't fit into that. We were part of the Austro-Hungarian <laughs> one, and so it's the bulwarks of Christianity and all that is holy and good. But uh, <laughs> but but uh, uh, I mean, I, th- I think there's a you know, I, it's it's the only the only caveat there, Sam, to that that I would put out there. Is that um, while while the the nation state and the sort of the the you know the northern European nation state as an ideal um, uh, is not perhaps universally applicable, at least the processes of nation state formation and you know however you want to define that. I'm not a not a huge fan of how Benedict Anderson talks about that, uh, but. You know, whatever the the impetus and the the sort of energy behind that, that's still alive. And you know, I think what's interesting about thinking about it, rather than applying that to Europe, I mean, I think Italy is a, is, a, is a special case um, for for historical contingent reasons. But why I think I it's more productive to I think draw the line between New World and Old World on this is because it's it's. It, it seems like it's it's particularly not applicable here for whatever reason. Right. Well, so just just a word um, in defense of, of Benedict Anderson, mm. um, who receives a lot of criticism, some of it justified, certainly. Um, but one of the things that people often miss uh, when they when they talk about Anderson is that he's talking about the new world. Yes, yes, and his his model of sort of constructivist linguistic nationalism um, is not primarily a story about Northwestern Europe or even, or even Eastern and Southern Europe. Yeah. It's, it's a story about the Americas. Yeah. And when you see it as an alternative path of development to the more familiar story, um, I, I think his account becomes more useful and avoids some of the the, the superficial uh, criticisms and also the superficial applications of it. Um, a couple of years ago, uh, the New York Times ran a, a piece, or it was actually 
a video the, piece, a video piece, yeah. um, crediting Anderson with the claim that national identities are made up. Yep. And that's really not what he says. No, no, no. He, it's not um, what he says. But, you know, what's interesting. I'll just will, you know, maybe to, to put a, a point on it. I mean, why I react to it so negatively is because I do think that there is a kind of uh, belief and and and, you know, it, there's a belief in this that also. I think undergirds my, or at least my irritation at this belief undergirds some of my uneasiness with Shadi's minimalist democracy as well, which is that there is a kind of, I think, American liberal urban belief that uh, one can basically get by on a certain kind of minimal conception of this. You know, my my weakness in talking about America is that that, and why I appreciate your book so much, is that I don't have like a good single answer, and I think your book provides many answers for how America works. Um but but none of those answers to me, and that's why again getting back to that that last point about uh, you know that that minimal uh, faith in democracy or faith in process in our constitutional systems, it just doesn't ring as enough. It's it's why it's call it that misappropriation of Anderson is kind of hegemonic among a lot of people, a lot of intellectuals, a lot of educated liberal uh, Westerners. Uh, it's what undergirds uh, the belief in the European Union as a as a proper ordering of you know of you know uh, a part of the world that's going to function. I don't think it will for a lot of reasons, and I think that's why it was so uh, annoying to have the New York Times run that thing as it was because it's 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 really latching onto this kind of I don't know simplistic idealism. I guess right. Yeah, I I I, I agree with that, um, and I I, I think. Part of the problem here is is failing to draw historical and cultural um, and geographical distinctions, and different things work or make sense in in different places. So I agree with you um, that the 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 EU uh, and its problems are largely, although not entirely, the result of the importation of a sort of facile. Um, American liberal or American inflected liberal understanding of of how states should operate, yeah. and for all sorts of reasons that that doesn't work in Europe. And I, I very much agree um, with nationalist criticisms of that of that enterprise. Yeah. But there's also a risk of the of of the, of the opposite mistake, and concluding that because it doesn't work in Europe, yeah. that it is also doomed in the United States and in in settings where it's more organic. Hmm. And I think that Can would I... be an error too. Go, Shani. Well, we do um, we do have to close up. Um, and, you know, Sam has kids, so we, we want to be respectful of having kids um, <laughs> since we support that here on the podcast, um, fertility rates and all that. But I, I do want to maybe offer... It just something that came up now. I don't know if it's profound or, or not so profound, but I would be curious if either of you have thoughts. It just occurred to me that here's what I'd say. And it's it's ending on a it's a positive thing and it's a positive note. To the extent that we are a shitty country, the US, it occurs to me that shitty countries tend to be more vibrant. They're more alive. They have energy. There's a sense of growth. There's a sense of movement, which is not necessarily what you have in much of Europe, which is a sort of slow depopulation and a sense of, you know, we have decadence here, If but if there's any place that has a more luxurious kind of decadence, 
it's the the most advanced democracies of of Western and Northern Europe. So to the the other big difference is shitty countries are better at integrating immigrants. So that's one thing that we share with our Latin American neighbors down south. They are very good when it comes to incorporating immigrants and migrants of various stripes. Well, but uh, but but for exactly for exactly that reason, I, I would challenge the term "shitty country." Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'm being immig- facetious. And, 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 I mean, and and but 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 immigration itself is. Um, a marker of this. And a lot of people want to come here and make their lives here. And that, and some of, you know, for some of them, that's because they're desperately poor and just about anywhere else would be better uh, than, than where they are. Um, but for many of them, it's because they, they recognize something vi- vibrant and open and appealing and not at all shitty. Yeah. Exactly. And so and, and my my sort of my my sort of plea, and I think I say something like this in the South America piece, um, but it's it's consistent with my book, is we need to think hard about the things that we do well in this country. Yeah. And not worry so much about imitating other countries or other cultures or societies that don't do those things well, because we we can't. We can't be anything other than what we are. So the challenge is to make the best use of the resources we've we've accumulated over 400 years rather than seeking models that can be imposed neatly for for other places. And the very failure of of the EU is a warning against doing that. And maybe there the lesson is um that Let's see, how would I put this? Um, no matter how bad we seem or no matter how bad things seem to be in our politics today, we're still fucking awesome. We're America. That <laughs> is yeah. the unifying idea. <laughs> it's America. Would you agree, yeah. Sam? That's it. Sam, Sam, I, I think I think on the paperback, I think you should retitle it. After nationalism, America. <laughs> Fuck yeah. <laughs> I actually, I actually, I actually quite like that um, because the 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 point, the point of of the title, it's not supposed to be quite as deflating as as it sounds. You know, it's 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 a, it's a it's a takeoff um, from uh, Alistair McIntyre's book after after Virtue, um, and the point of that book is not that people are going to stop talking about virtue or or even stop um uh appealing to the the traditional understandings of of virtue and of of ethics that that he admires uh, it's that uh the discussion has been pluralized and become somewhat incoherent and what what i'm trying to say is that that's annoying and and dangerous in in certain ways but it's not altogether a bad thing um and i i just don't share the affinity um for these these european retirement homes um <laughs> the way some americans do and there's 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 you know there's there's an urban liberal version you want it to be denmark or the netherlands now there's um a right-wing version we want it to be to be hungry You're right. I, I actually like america and want it to to succeed um and i'm i'm a critic 
of nationalism insofar as I think that certain forms of nationalism actually hinder American success and are counterproductive uh, rather than because I object on some grand moral principle. That's a, well, that's a very good note to end yeah, on. I like I that. And I actually feel pretty damn good right now about being an American. So there you have it. There Demir, you have it. final words? No, I, this was great, Sam. Again, everyone, uh, definitely, definitely, definitely buy Sam's book. Uh, it's, uh, definitely, it's a terrific that, yeah, read. Definitely, definitely buy two. <laughs> buy two, <laughs> one for your grandmother. And, uh, you know, the holidays are coming up. Give, also, Thanksgiving should be giving gifts for that as well. So everyone, buy Sam's book. I, honestly, it's a really great read, especially, I think, uh, important in, in today's moment. Sam, thanks for joining us. This was great. Thanks, thanks Sam. for having me.